Thanks, Bobby. As a kid, towards this time of the month, um, it would kind of suck because it's just a reminder how close school is. Um, sorry, any students that may be in here right now. But, um, but there was a, a bright spot. The bright spot was that football season's coming. Um, and it's still a bright spot for me. It's a little different now. I don't know. But uh, fond memories are my household um, is every Sunday getting prepared for the game. Uh, I know now around this time at the office, I'm just going to be reminded of how uh, in need Bobby is of the gospel, being a Steelers fan. And, uh, but at our house, when it was game time, we're watching the Ravens. If you're not a Ravens fan, you're invited. You can come. <laughs> but you're watching the Ravens. Say, so, hey, when it's halftime, can we switch? No. <laughs> what? You're going to watch these commercials and you're going to like it. You're watching the Ravens. Even when Super Bowls would come around, there would be people who maybe have sprinkled in uh, throughout the season who weren't Ravens fans, but they're there with us watching the Super Bowl and cheering for the Ravens. It's, it's conversion. That's what that's called. But what you're not allowed to do you're not allowed to come and expect for things to change because you're here. It's not allowed. We don't hate you. This is our place. You're invited, but this is our place. We're watching the Ravens here. There's not going to be super amount of accommodations to turn us away from the team that we're watching. That's just the way it's going to be. And it would be quite arrogant to enter into someone's home and expect for that to happen. I think we would all agree. That would be quite arrogant to expect for things to adjust because now you're present in someone else's home. You know, that's the biggest issue with what we call the fall. It's the human beings being invited into this place and forgetting that they're the house guests. We've looked around and figured out how things work. Oh, okay, this looks like the sun's moving this way, stars do this, looks like our flesh does this, whatever. Okay, we got it from here, and we toss away the instructions uh, like we're building an Ikea table or something. And we're in a house that we don't own and have forgotten. But then not only that, because of that, there's a lot of different types of divisions even in this passage, there are a lot of kind of little small subpoints that come out. Obviously, division is one because we're at a place now where Israel is divided. And so I naturally think about a lot of the divisions that happen and exist now, have happened throughout history, exist now in the church. Some of those divisions who weren't even divisions, I mean, a year or two ago. The things we're divided on regarding what is gender. Right. What is a man? What is a woman? What's a man and woman's role? That's a longer one. What is sex for? Who created marriage? What's its purpose? All these things that are divided. But then I also think about something else. I think about this thing that's happening. When I was reading this passage, I couldn't help but think about uh, this growing deconstruction. I'm still learning about it. I think what it actually is, I've seen 
But as far as more you know, it, the, the polished definition of it today, I'm still understanding and learning about it. But what happens if deconstruction, what I've been seeing, is that whatever people have claimed is their faith or their structured religion begins to be torn down through some event or some newfound information. But in regards to Christianity, the new faith or the new understanding they may have is a result of a lot of babies being thrown out with the bathwater. And maybe the event is quite painful and quite traumatic and they're not guided well. And it's like a chicken and an egg thing. What comes first? Are the visions happening because of deconstruction and faith is actually being dwindled and diluted or is the faith being dwindled and diluted and then there's the vision and because of these divisions and the divisiveness there's deconstruction happening and you know I probably argue uh, a bunch of different ways but I think it starts at the top in the leaders no matter what I came across this study a recent Barna study that I heard one pastor share a pastor named William McDowell and the study was uh, the amount of pastors that believe in a biblical worldview Pastors that believe in a biblical worldview, and a biblical worldview being uh, believing that there is an absolute moral truth that exists, and that such truth is divine by the Bible, and there's a firm belief in these six following specific things. So, a belief in an absolute moral truth, such truth is divine by the Bible, and a belief in six specific teachings, that's these. Jesus lived a sinless life. God is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe and still rules it today. Salvation is a gift from God and cannot be earned. Satan is real. A Christian has a responsibility to share their faith in Christ with other people. And the Bible is secure in all of its teachings and accurate. And out of 1,000 pastors surveyed across the nation, 37% of those agree with this. Didn't expect an audible gasp, but yeah, it's, that's awkwardy. 37%. Here's what's more interesting. The overwhelming majority, the 67%, you don't find from the study that they have torn away from the Christian faith and have adopted a new religion. They simply add it to their own. They've mixed it. They have worldviews mixed with a biblical one. They've gone to watch the Ravens game and switched to other games during halftime. Now, the thing is this, arrogance in our house, and you know, in real time, we'll let you finish the game, but you're not invited. You, you, you won't be back to watch the game. But arrogance in the life of a Christian leads to apostasy. The house that we've been invited in that we claim to belong to, this is talking to the Christians, professing Christians, that we claim to belong to, arrogance leads to you straying away from that very same house you claim to want to belong to. You seek out a different house. That's what apostasy is. And how did we get here as a church, an arrogant bride demanding rights and demanding for things to be the way they are, 
I want to watch this. I want to make sure this is set here. I want to move this from here to there. And so we stand to benefit when we look at this passage here. Uh, I, I shared last time different ways we can see the Bible. Today we're looking at a mirror. Let's hold the mirror up to our faces as we're looking at Israel, this divided kingdom, and we're looking at northern Israel and Jeroboam, and let's hold it up to our faces to see if there are some things that we recognize and stand to correct. So let's jump in, verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out there and, and built Penuel. Now, some context. What's happening here is Jeroboam, the kingdom has been split. And since the kingdom has been split, Jeroboam is like, oh, man, I need to take care of my business. I need to make sure the kingdom doesn't leave my hands. I need to build it up. I need to go out uh, into Ephraim, and I need to build up some forts there to make sure the military and our defense is set so that they don't come that in. I need to go in Penuel. I need to build it up there, and I need to make sure we're safe. I need to do all these things to make sure we're safe because it's on me. But what happened before all of this, what happened even before they split, is that God told them he was going to split. He had prophets that said, hey, you guys are going to split. Not only did he tell you you're going to split, he told Jeroboam specifically, if you follow my ways and you obey my statutes, I will build you a kingdom as I did for David. So he's got protection. He seems to have forgotten it. Not only does he seem to have forgotten it, he seems to believe that the building of his kingdom is left to his own hands. Isaiah 30, ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine and who make an alliance but not with my spirit that they may add sin to sin. Jeroboam is running around frantically, making sure that the kingdom doesn't get torn from his hands. Meanwhile, the Lord said, hey, I'm not going to tear it from your hands if you follow me. So much anxiety unnecessarily. Just forgetting the promises of the Lord. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sheep. That's something I think we can relate to, even myself. We ask for these things from God, and then it's filled with anxiety uh, when he gives us those things in his grace, in his kindness. I think one of the easiest things that attaches us to it is maybe parenting. You, know, you seek the Lord, Lord, would you give me a child? And he gives you a child. And it's like, oh, it's up to me for everything to go right. Your child's in danger if that's true. Genuine danger. But here I think is where it gets hard. It's just trusting the Lord that's very hard for us. It's not trusting him that things will go well. It's trusting him. Because in this life, not everything goes well. But it's hard for us to trust in his goodness when our circumstance looks like he's not good. Maybe parents have dealt with some tragic things with children. 
And it's hard to trust that he genuinely is the one who gives and takes. It's hard. And it spreads out to every aspect of our lives so that when we get, he can still be the Lord who gives, but I'm the one who maintains and keeps and protects and guards. Eating the bread of anxious toil. And it's, you know, trusting God isn't trusting him to give you what you want, when you want it, and for how long you want it. It's believing that no matter when or if he gives it to you, he's good. God is good all the time, all the time. Amen. So Jeroboam is quite forgetful. At the inception of the kingdom, kingdom just started, just started fresh from God saying, hey, I'm going to build you a kingdom, and if you follow my statutes and my commands, I'm going to keep it for you. And Jeroboam was like, I got to keep this kingdom, man. So forgetful. And this forgetfulness of God's promises and his protection, it leads to a forgetfulness of God's prescriptions. God gives Israel prescriptions for worship. Let's look at verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they'll kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and one in Dan, and then his thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. There's this uh, desire to be innovative here that I'm going to flesh out a little bit in this passage. Jeroboam is motivated by something very interesting. It's very destructive. Israel's dealing with some church hurt. Jeroboam and the people of northern Israel went to Rehoboam and said, hey, man, work is too hard. You, you need to change some things. Can you please change some things? And Rehoboam sought some counsel. He got counsel from the elders, not like elder as an office, but older people in the nation. He sought counsel, and they said, hey, man, if you're kind to them, they will respect you as a king. And then he went to the younger guys, and he, they were like, man, you, you put your foot down. And he said, I'm going to go with the younger guys. Praise God for our older saints in the church. So he put his foot down. He said, hey, I'm going to be worse. You think you thought my father was bad? I'm going to be worse. And so they split. That is this hurt, this pain, this anger, this opposition. And instead of Jeroboam being led by what the Lord desires for his people, he's led by what he doesn't want to do that resembles the opposition. I came from this place and they did this us wrong. Let's do everything opposite, different. Let's make sure we're nothing like them. If I let them continue to go back to worship, they're going to be drawn back to that place. I don't even want them drawn back to that place. He has Judah in his mind. He doesn't have Yahweh, the God of Judah, in his mind. Suggesting a selfless pretense, saying, oh, you know, they don't have to travel as far. We can have stuff right here. Meanwhile, it's completely self-centered. Because if they keep worshiping there, they're going to kill me. Still forgetful. 
there's also something that's kind of disputed in this text because there are a lot of scholars and commentators that look at this and say, man, Israel, when you look at the rest of the scriptures and you look at these moments referenced in the scriptures, no one charges this moment in the northern kingdom with idolatry. There are specific times when Israel and the kings of Israel are charged with idolatry, and this isn't one. And you look at that, and you're like, well, what? There are calves here. Obviously, you saw the calves, and we think back to Exodus, and it's like, man, didn't you guys learn? And that's what the argument is from the scholars. They say, hey, Jeroboam would have never instructed Israel to worship these calves, and the people would have never gone for it because they still remember when Israel got stepped on by Yahweh last time. And they're not going to do that again. So what in the world is happening? And why are these calves here? Innovation. Let me explain. Solomon had a temple built for Yahweh. Except for Solomon's temple was instructed to him. The instructions were given to Israel when they built the tabernacle. And the temple was just a bigger and better tabernacle. Jeroboam built the temple and he got his ideas from the culture. He mixed in some cool things. Jeroboam had spent some time in Egypt, and he had some other people who had spent some time in that area. And guess what? Calves were in. You're not to worship them, but you know how Solomon had the cherubim that were the footstool of Yahweh? The calves will be just like that, but they look so cool. Look at that. That's a bull, man. There's no mention In this passage or anywhere referencing this passage that they were involved in idolatry, what they're involved in is syncretism. Mixing of Yahwistic belief with Baal worship. Maybe the practices of Yahweh, but the aesthetics of Baal. And over time, those things begin to merge. And if you know anything about the northern kings, not one was good. Not one. So rather than instructing Israel to just flat out worship a different God, says, no, we're not going to do that. We got to maintain, you know, we're Israel. We're Yahweh's people. But let's change it up a bit. I'm going to mix some practices. There are some things that are in around us that the nations are doing that, you know, can help people stay here. I, I want to make sure people, this is a new kingdom. I want to make sure people are staying here. I want them to go back to the old place. Plus, we've been hurt and marred over there. We don't, we don't want to go over there. As a matter of fact, what can we keep doing to make sure we don't even look like them over there? Drawn and motivated by that hurt. Letting the culture dictate how we approach the Lord. Letting what is sacred be replaced by what is common. I remember in the tragedy in 2012 when Trayvon Martin was murdered. And if that's not tragic enough, there were churches around the country that administered communion in remembrance of him. And they did so with the items that he reportedly purchased before he was murdered with Skittles and Sprite. And you might seem like one of those old Christians to get off my lawn when you look at that and you say, oh, no, that's wrong. No, it's wrong. 
Communion is a sacred thing in remembrance of the one to whom we want to point people like Trayvon. The only reason a human life being lost is viable is because of the breath that was breathed in by the one we remember during communion. It's sacred. You can't mix or replace that with something common. And then over time, you wonder why we have calves in the sanctuaries. Leviticus 10, Aaron's sons, priests, called to the office of priest. They just did one little thing. They got some fire that wasn't prescribed to get. They had to light some incense in the tabernacle. They got the fire and lit the incense and then died. But the fire was common. They were prescribed with what to use in the tabernacle because that's sacred space. And God is a holy God. It says they offered strange fire. And there's evidence of our ignorance towards the holy holiness of God when you read a passage like Leviticus 10 because now culturally it's the house guests who have overrun the house. We read a passage like that and say, man, why did God have to kill him? I don't like the morality of this God. It wasn't that big a deal. He wanted fire, they gave him fire. A desire to be innovative with what God gave you rather than be vigilantly obedient with what he's given you. This desire to be choosing what you do with what you've gotten rather than graciously receive what God and his divine providence has provided you. See, with arrogance, you don't need to decide to become an idolater. It happens naturally. And so now we have uh, northern Israel and their progressive nation. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before the one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a, priest, uh, appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests on the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel, and on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, he instituted a feast from the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. There's a lot of choosing happening here. All of these things have been handed down by the Lord to Israel. No acceptance. There's a lot of choosing. I want to read Deuteronomy 12 real quick, 1 through 5. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high 
mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of their place. You shall not worship the Lord your God that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. So Yahweh gave instructions. He gave commandments. Hey, don't worship any other gods. I'm the one true and living God. Not only are you not to worship them, they hate you actually. They're not good. Oh, and by the way, as you worship me, this is the way you do it. Arrogance leads to choices, and choices leads to apostasy, this desire to be innovative. And so now, when you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel, you have Judah that has no images with God, says don't do it. God has already put images on this earth. It's you. Israel has veneration of calves. Judah has a Levitical priesthood, not because they chose it, but God chose it. Jeroboam and Israel said, hey, look, you want to be a priest? You want to be a, you want to be a, okay, everybody can be a priest. Judah has a central sanctuary. Israel says, look, you don't have to travel that far. I'll put one right there. I'll put one right here. Judah has a separatist cult. The classic word of the word cult. They're holy, set apart, not to be like the neighboring nations. Israel has a syncretistic cult. There are a lot of aspects about them that looks like all of the nations. You have two kingdoms, two kings, and ultimately two religions. This isn't an issue of open rebellion. The northern king in Israel and Israel as a nation didn't openly rebel Yahweh. This isn't an issue of turning to other gods. The northern king in Israel and northern Israel didn't say we're going to worship this God. What this is is an issue of heresy. It takes a lot of small decisions to get from the left page to the right page. All these small compromises made that says, you know, that's okay, bring that in. This is okay, bring that in. That's okay, bring this in. And then down the line, a whole nother religion. Heresy is an arbitrary selection. What was that? An arbitrary selection of doctrines or practices. A choosing instead of dutifully accepting those which God has enjoined. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out and go down to Egypt without asking my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. You think about, I think arrogance is a strong word. I still think it's an accurate one. Think about a lot of the divisions that we see today. I had a conversation a few years ago with a woman who was a pastor, and we were talking about the office of pastor, and we were 
I, I love theological conversations. I love biblical conversations. Uh, but we didn't get there. She asked me what my stance on was a pastor. And I said the scriptures teach that the office is reserved for a man. And she called me a heretic. I've been called worse. Now, heretic has a meaning. I just, if it's true, I definitely don't want to stray away from what the scriptures teach. Let's go through it. Can you please show me? But we didn't get that far. There seemed to be more of a personal uh, irateness and hostility. I think about when we make decisions on whatever it is, whatever we're passionate about, whatever we're divided on. One, have you mixed what is sacred with what's common in any way? Two, in whatever you're pursuing, are you pursuing the truth of the scriptures? I think that that should make things so easier. A lot of the anxiety between us is like, oh, I got to have this conversation. We're actually in neutral territory if we're both just trying to seek what this thing none of us wrote said. It's neutral. And one can point the other to what it says. True, uh, three, are my wounds leading me wayward? That's a real thing. There are a lot of people who have experienced hurt in church, whether it be at the hands of a man pastor, and so therefore your views on that change, whether it be at the hands of a worship leader, so your views on worship changes, whatever it is, is it your wounds that's leading you there? Or is it the truth of the scriptures? Make sure you deal with your wounds because they need to be dealt with. That's a valuable practice. Don't let them guide you into erecting calves. Being hurt is real. It's painful. Without you even needing to make a decision, you end up make opposite decisions of the things you've been hurt by. Because we haven't dealt with those wounds. Think through how we became so lofty in our role with our ability to make these choices about what we want to see and when we want to see it and how we see it. We might experience even small battles in our waywardness today, but I said this some years ago. I once heard a song that said, when he cracks the sky, nothing's going to matter. So stand with me now and help me fight this battle. As you're pursuing whatever you're pursuing, are you doing that with in mind that the one true king is going to crack the sky and bring his children home? Will he find calves in your house? Or will it be sacred space? We just finished singing as we prepare for communion. My heart will sing no other name. Jesus. Jesus. Jeroboam 
And whatever the world offers you is not the ruler or the king or kingdom you need. Jesus, with higher regard for himself, no fear of being killed, but coming to be killed, that you would have life abundantly. Drawing the world to himself. And that's what we remember. This sacred act of the homeowner, the one true sacred being dwelling among those who are common, that those who are common would become sacred. His body was broken, taking the penalty of death on his own body that we deserve, but he took it on himself. His blood was spilled because the debt we incurred through our sin needed to be washed away, and it was through the spilling of his blood. And so now the sacred space is you, every single one of you who trust in Jesus Christ and dwelled by the Holy Spirit. Sacred space. Don't replace it with anything that's common. Let's confess and be reminded as we take communion together.